Life is made up of many gorgeous moments. Cherish them all, big and small, with Blue Nile. Whether it's for yourself or a loved one, Blue Nile's unrivaled selection of expertly crafted fine jewelry and statement pieces help make all your moments sparkle. Blue Nile's experts are on hand to guide you, and their diamond guarantee ensures you get the highest quality at the best price. Celebrate a life well lived in the most radiant way and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. You're listening to a podcast from the South China Morning Post. Hello and welcome to the China Geopolitics Podcast. My name is Jared Watt. I'm the specialist digital editor for the South China Morning Post. This Sunday will mark three months since Russia launched its war upon the people of Ukraine. In a week where the US Deputy Secretary of State Wendy Sherman travelled to Brussels and made a fiery speech pointedly accusing Beijing of failing to condemn Russian war crimes and declaring she hoped the PRC would learn the right lessons from the Ukraine war about not being able to separate the US from its allies. You're going to hear from my colleague Mark Magnier from our New York bureau about how lessons are being learned all right, but it's more about China's military studying the tactics and weaponry being deployed in Ukraine, while Ambassador Qinggang walks a careful line of diplomacy to put forward Beijing's position to conservative media outlets and Republicans. You're also going to hear what happened with the surprise visit of the person third in line to the US presidency, better known as House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, to Taiwan. It's a fascinating tale. Meanwhile, on this side of the world, Xi Jinping has us all wondering what exactly he proposed in yesterday's speech at the annual Boao conference in Beijing. He announced something called the Global Security Initiative. And looking at the speech, it sounds like he's proposing something a lot like what the United Nations was set up to do, except China's going to be in the driver's seat. We're still digesting this, and no doubt we'll be reading more about it over the weekend on scmp.com. But we're going to start this week with the news of how a small island of some 700,000 people, just 1,800 kilometres from the northeast coast of Australia, has just landed a geopolitical bombshell into the Australian national election and US plans for its diplomatic and military pivot to the Asia-Pacific. Last December, you heard from senior Asia correspondent Maria Siao of the ongoing violence and unrest in Honiara, the capital city of the Solomon Islands, sparked by the government's decision to switch its allegiance from Taipei to Beijing. Maria is back this week after the announcement that the Solomon Islands have signed a secret deal with Beijing over security and possibly a military base. Now, right now, China has just one overseas military base in the Republic of Djibouti on the East African coast. Begging the question, has China just achieved a crucial strategic victory in the Southern Pacific? Or indeed, is this one of the greatest foreign policy failures in Australian history? Here's what the former chief of the Australian military, Admiral Chris Barry, had to say about it. Australia was always a reliable friend of countries in the Pacific. And here we've got a secret treaty or a secret security pact that's been negotiated. We've not been involved. I mean, even when we put the lease down on the port of Darwin, that was a public event. This is not. Now, what does it tell us about uh, the last 15 years of assisting the Solomon Islands and the fact that they now feel that China is a better place to go to? I think, frankly, it's a failure of Australian government policy. 
It's uncharted waters we're sailing into this week. On with the show. Maria Siao, great to talk to you again. Welcome back to the podcast. It's been rumoured for a while now, but on Wednesday this week, Solomon Islands Prime Minister Manasa Sogavare has announced his government had signed a security pact with China, quote, with our eyes open, but has refused to divulge the details of what's involved or when it might actually be published. What do we know about this deal? Oh, well, Jared, first of all, um, thanks for having me on the podcast once again. I think, first of all, um, it is useful to understand the backdrop to the latest developments and, you know, about this draft agreement that we've seen, which was largely triggered um, in large um, part by this draft agreement in late March last month um, between China and the Solomon Islands, um, because in this controversial draft document, which was leaked on social media, um, China will be allowed to send police um, as well as armed forces to the Solomon Islands in order to maintain social order. It will also allow Beijing to deploy forces to protect the safety of Chinese personnel and major projects in the country. And this, as we know, is due to the anxieties and concerns Um, following the riots last year in the Solomons, um, and which also led to the attacks, arson, looting, and so on, of Chinese businesses, shops, and interests in the country. Um, But what is more alarming to other powers in the region about the security deal is the concern that Solomon Islands will allow China um, to build a military base in the country, um, as well as allowing Chinese warships um, to be sent to the country, which means that these warships will essentially be located just 2,000 kilometers from the coastline of Australia. Even though um, the Solomon's prime minister has said that his country will not allow China to build a military base, um, this hasn't stopped both Australia and the United States from stepping up diplomatic pressure and calling on um, the Solomon's not to sign this pact with Beijing. So, in fact, Australia was so concerned with this agreement that it dispatched its minister for international development and the Pacific um, to the Solomon's during mid-election where he publicly called on the country's leadership to consider not signing this pact. Um, he cited the spirit of regional openness and transparency. And of course, you know, we know that the United States has also sent its National Security Council Indo-Pacific coordinator, uh, Kurt Campbell, who has reportedly arrived in Solomon's um, on Thursday with a delegation of U.S. government officials. Um, but with the deal already confirmed by the Solomon's prime minister on Wednesday, I think perhaps what remains to be done by Campbell is damage control, <laughs> because the U.S. has essentially said that the agreement Uh, will destabilize the Solomons and will set a concerning precedent for the wider Pacific region. And of course, Washington has also said that it would reopen its embassy in the Solomons. Uh, So this will perhaps be one of the issues that Campbell will talk about when he is in the country. And of course, he's also expected to address the larger concerns about Chinese um, influence in the region, which of course will be uppermost on the minds of him and his delegation. Maria, depending on what side of the geopolitical divide one takes, this is either the greatest failure of Australian foreign policy in decades or a masterstroke of Chinese diplomacy to gain a strategic foothold in the Pacific. What are your sources telling you? I think, you know, it would be too far of a stretch to say that this is a masterstroke on the part of Chinese diplomacy. I think it is probably a failure of Australian foreign diplomacy. As many of my analysts have been telling me because they've they've been saying that you know efforts by Solomon's to become closer with China is to be expected because China is a power to be reckoned with. It is a power that is keen to protect and expand its interests in the region. It is a power with development funds, with economic goodies to share. And best of all, it's a power that comes with no strings attached. And all of these are in total um, opposite to what the Australians are offering. And and we have seen that countries, especially Australia, which has been 
long one of the biggest donors in the Solomons. Over the years, they've appeared as high-handed, they've appeared as um, overbearing in their dealings with Pacific countries. Um, Australia, for example, it exerts a strong influence on Solomon's development, finance, economy, and so on. Um, but over time, it has imposed sanctions, it has threatened to terminate aid. But with China, these, again, are no strings attached. These are not possibilities that the Solomons um, has to contend with. So in that sense, you can say that in recent years, um, the ball game has been turned around and almost in Solomon's uh, favour. And it's interesting you say that Australia has been criticised of being high-handed. One of the defining issues of the century for the world, but particularly in the Pacific, is the one of climate change. The Solomon Islands and many nations in that region have all directly appealed to Australia to do something about climate change. Scott Morrison's government's response is to dig more coal mines go fracking and really pour money into fossil fuel development. Overall, there is this sense among certain quarters in the Solomons and also in the region that despite Australia being there in the first place, you know, Canberra has not done enough um, to address the region's, um, including Solomon's concerns about underdevelopment, about climate change issues, which, of course, you know, is one of the biggest issues um, affecting countries in the Pacific region. Um, as one of the advisors to um Solomon Islands wrote in an article recently, Australia has basically squandered its influence in the Solomons for more than a decade. Because you know that the Australians, they undertook the Ramsey operation for 15 years, um, which ended in 2017. And that, of course, uh, refers to the regional assistance mission to the Solomon Islands, which is also known as Operation Help Me Friend. Um, this is basically a partnership between the people and the government of Solomon Islands and 15 contributing countries of the Pacific region, but it's mainly funded and led by Australia. But however, despite 15 years, this operation did not stabilize the country, which remained poor, remained filled with political divisions. And of course, we know we shouldn't let the U.S. off the hook either. I mean, the U.S. did not fare any better. It has often ignored the Pacific countries over the years. So it's probably not far wrong for the Chinese Foreign Ministry spokesperson Wang Wenbin to say this week that the U.S. Embassy in Solomon Islands has been closed for 29 years and that the most recent visit to Fiji made by a U.S. Secretary of State was 37 years ago. You know, Wang Wenbin basically said that several U.S. officials now fancy a visit to some Pacific Island countries all of a sudden. After all these years, are they doing so out of care for these countries or do they have ulterior motives? Well, I guess that's really something to think about, right? Well, it's interesting you mentioned that Wang Wenbin's comments really hit home very sharply because, you know, for years, ever since the Barack Obama administration, there was this talk of the U.S. pivot to the Asia-Pacific, and we hear all of this stuff. But, of course, mostly it's about either moving troops to the north of Australia or, indeed, multi-billion dollar weapons contracts being sold to the Australians. What kind of diplomatic rearguard action is, is going on here? You mentioned Kurt Campbell has landed in the Solomon Islands just yesterday. What's expected to happen? Well, I think basically what he will do, because now that the damage has already been done, is basically to engage in damage control. Um, I think he will try to find out the security concerns about um, the Solomon Islands, um, finding ways that the U.S. can address. It might be a little bit too late because um, now that the deal has already been signed, I think what the U.S. essentially can do is to just go ahead with its initial plan um, to set up the embassy um, in Solomon's and um, to find ways to further counter um, Chinese influence. And I think this might mean that the U.S. might discuss more um, developmental issues and ways to assist 
on the Solomon, which basically is a country with 700,000 people. You know, I mean, if the U.S. had been interested in following up and in helping the Solomon, it could have done that a long time ago. You don't need a lot of money to help the Solomon. I mean, you know, with 700,000 people, you know, a couple of million dollars of um, developmental assistance basically goes a long way, but it hasn't done that. So if, if it's planned to play catch up, then I say good luck because um, I think uh, from if I were the Solomon leaders, you know, looking at this scenario playing in front of my eyes, I would probably go for China. I mean, China is giving me so much and asking for so little in return. Most importantly, I think um, this will also help the Solomon government remain in power, which is, of course, one of the biggest misgivings and concerns felt by people and politicians um, in the country, which is that the deal with China is largely an instrument to allow this current government and prime minister to remain in power. It's interesting you mentioned about the no-strings-attached assistance from China to Solomon Islands. What of Taiwan in this? Because, you know, going back to December, we spoke about the roots of the conflict here. We had a separate province, a separate island, wishing to align itself with Taiwan. Taiwan was offering aid as well, but only very specifically to those people who were supporting Taiwan. Have we heard anything from Taiwan in this? Not explicitly, because um, right now, because both sides have, have no diplomatic relations. Uh, but now that you've brought up the issue, I think um, it is very likely that Taiwan uh, will continue to want to maintain ties with um people on the island who still support Taiwan. And there is still a large segment of people who do, do still support Taipei. And I think there is still the possibility. And we've also seen indications that Taipei has um, also pumped in developmental funds, even in the lack of bilateral ties. So I think that is going to continue. Um, so this sense of geopolitical rivalry and power play is still expected to continue, but perhaps um, in a less open way, because um, it probably does not also want to um, to invite criticism or anger from Beijing. At least it does not want to confront Beijing directly in, in a direct way of confrontation. So I think that is still likely to continue and we'll see probably more of it in the, in the weeks and months ahead. Well, Maria, obviously there's a lot more to come on that, starting, of course, with Kurt Campbell, the Indo-Pacific Coordinator for the US National Security Council. He's in Honiara right now trying to walk back or just talk to the government about the deal of which we know no details signed with China. Look forward to speaking to you again. Thank you for being on the podcast. Thanks for having me, and it's always a pleasure speaking to you. Mark Magnia is with our New York Bureau. Mark, welcome back. Uh, Thank you very much, Jared. Mark, you've been watching China's ambassador to the US, Qin Gang, take to the talk shows and the op-ed pages this week. But I feel the need to read a quote of his from your article on SCMP.com, and this was from an op-ed he published last month. And it says, quote, many Americans are understandably trying to understand where China stands as the crisis in Ukraine unfolds. Mark, do you think Americans are any closer to understanding where China stands on the war on Ukraine? I, th- I think the uh, the fact, as you mentioned, that they've sort of been on a uh, quite a public relations push. Um, the article that you quoted, as well as I was at Harvard on Saturday when he and uh, Huang Ping, the New York Consulate General, both gave comments and speeches, and then um, another opinion piece uh, in the uh, National Interest magazine on Monday, which is a sort of a conservative 
foreign policy book, trying, I think, to clarify what many see as uh, a rather confusing and somewhat contradictory stance on, on Ukraine. And I'm curious, it seems to contrast markedly with the wolf warrior style, how do we say, throwing barbs and, and rocks via Twitter uh, that we've seen other embassies and, and consulates around the world. Is that what you're seeing, that this is a quite measured approach? It has been a, a very noticeable shift, not just for the foreign ministry uh, overall uh, group of cadres, but even for Chin Gang himself. You know, he he has an interesting background. He uh, he was actually a, a news assistant at uh, United Press International. That's how he started his career with a Western news organization uh, before going into the foreign ministry and rising pretty quickly until he uh, joined uh, in 2005 the information department and made his name in the Wolf Warrior camp himself. At one point, he uh, compared the absorption, uh, China's absorption of Tibet to Abraham Lincoln's um, emancipation of enslaved African Americans and similar um, similar sort of pushback uh, statements. So a lot of people expected a very tough combative line, um, he has very quickly switched into a more, you know, traditional uh, ambassador role here, trying to work out what I think is trying to work out some arguments through these various efforts that will try to reach the American and I guess Western audiences with a bit more nuance, but something that attempts to sort of make a consistent set of reasons for things, rather than the often traditional kind of rather sharp pushback that, that we've often seen that can can read as very defensive to West, Western ears. And Mark, I can't help but notice there must be a very interesting dynamic that Chin Gang is looking at with the US politics and US media, where you have, you know, Fox News and the right wing of the Republican Party really not quite cheerleading Vladimir Putin, but really leaning towards him. But when it gets to China, you get a bipartisan kind of wall. How do you think he's playing that? Well, I think in some way it's interesting because because, um, it's probably a bit of a compliment to some extent in that I think deep down probably Washington views the real adversary, the real threat to its top dog position over the long term to be China. Whereas Russia, they can probably parse in the context, in the overriding context of the partisan warfare going on domestically now. Um, the the, the it's a sort of uh, hawkish or Republican uh, admiration for Putin is is fascinating it's 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 probably no one opinion but but uh, or no one viewpoint but more a combination of disparate disgruntled camps you know part of it probably picking up on former president donald trump's uh, strange uh, obsession with with putin um part of it just because um because in the polarity, the, that the fact that Biden has 
move to support Ukraine, therefore it must be bad and we'll go in the opposite direction. And part of it probably just, you know, uh, he's a strong man with strength and we don't have one. So all of those, I think, combined. Um, so uh, uh, in terms of Qinggang and the China strategy, on top of what you had mentioned, of course, is this complex sort of ledge that, that Qinggang and China um, more, more broadly are trying to walk, where they're uh, they want to keep uh, the relationship with Russia for various reasons of feeling embattled, perhaps by the uh, alliances that Biden is building. Um, but they don't want to jeopardize these uh, massive markets, uh, especially at a time when the uh, Chinese economy is increasingly wobbly and you've got the big, big show coming uh, in the fall with uh, Xi Jinping being um, being named to his third and perhaps fourth and fifth stint as head of the, the party. Um, and that, back to sort of this communication strategy, is just some of the contradictions and some of the fence walking that China is trying to do right now on its position. A lot has been said a lot has been written about China's relationship with Russia regarding the Ukraine invasion and war, its refusal to condemn the invasion and the various massacres uh, and, and crimes against humanity. But you're working on something else. You're working on an upcoming feature that's all about understanding Russia's war in Ukraine, but from a Chinese military perspective. What have you found? Uh, yes, uh, Jared, the, the, that's, I think, uh, just coming out. So the PLA, uh, the People's Liberation Army, is a very careful organization, uh, befitting, I think, how China in general approaches change. You can kind of think of the, uh, the reform and opening that China has had, where it will take a special economic zone and liberalize the economy in a small little way and look and watch and, and then do it on a slightly bigger framework and this sort of thing. And you see this very much with the PLA on how they learn lessons. So uh, what uh, we tried to do with this piece is, is Look, it will take years before we truly know what lessons the PLA draws. And it will also really depend, which we don't know yet, whether Russia ultimately, through whatever tactics, comes out looking like a winner or not. This will also determine, to some extent, um, uh, the PLA's thinking on this. But uh, what we tried to do is get some of those who who look very, very closely at China, its history, the PLA, its history, its tactics, and get some of the lessons that we would expect them to draw. And you have to remember that the, um, you know, the current modernization program, which uh, was sort of unrolled in 2015 with their white paper, uh, really was inspired, if you will, by the shock that it saw in the 1990 uh, invasion Gulf War on uh, Iraq. And so that gives you some uh, sense of the time that it takes it to absorb some lessons. <laughs> that's, a, that's a long time. Not that the Pentagon moves uh, like Johnny Swifty either or most militaries, but some of the lessons that 
according to PLA uh, watchers that appear to stand out are one of these is that no matter how much you think your playbook is ready for real time, that all plans, uh, I'm sure there's a famous Clausewitz statement on that, but basically all plans fall apart as soon as the first shot is fired. And so uh, this has been a, a real eye opener, I think, for for China, which has really more lately than other areas like the economy has has taken a lot of its cues from the Russian military. It still gets a lot of its hardware from them. It has uh, obviously has taken a Chinese aircraft carrier. Um, it has participated as a kind of junior member in some of the massive exercises that Moscow has has organized. And so that's a shock. I think probably another lesson that people were telling me is that they will redouble their very rapid uh, nuclear weapon uh, building program. Um, they are estimated to have around 400 now by Pentagon figures, and that's expected to rise to 1,000 by 2030. And they are doing that because they, I think, watched Moscow uh, be able to use that as a bit of a... Uh, uh, a leverage against NATO and the West to push back. And uh, I think they reiterated, Moscow reiterated that threat last week, was it, when it was named that, that Sweden and some others were thinking of joining NATO. And so so then I think, too, a kind of a, a secondary lesson, perhaps, from them is that arguably uh, Russia may never have invaded Ukraine if you know, Ukraine was the depository for a lot of the nuclear arsenal that, that the Soviet Union had and was convinced to give it up by joint pressure tactics by both Moscow and, ironically, the U.S. <laughs> so um, so that that's kind of another lesson on this that, uh, you know, I think North Korea also does that. They'd just be a poor a developing country and no one would take them seriously if you didn't have nuclear weapons. So I think that's that's one of the lessons of many that uh, that the PLA may draw. Mark, there's something else I'd need to raise with you before you go. And that was a fortnight ago, we saw the image of the British Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, walking the streets of Kiev with a Vladimir Zelensky. The UK won't send troops the US won't send troops, but the UK would send their prime minister. We also had this surprise announcement that Nancy Pelosi, the Speaker of the US House of Representatives, was going to fly into Taiwan and have meetings. Now, that was called off because she tested positive for COVID. Now, I checked the history books. The last time a US Speaker flew to Taiwan was 1997, and it was Newt Gingrich. Have you heard anything more about this? Is the trip being rescheduled? Is it just passed from memory? This, from my understanding, Beijing uh, really went pretty ballistic uh, when word uh, leaked out about this. Um, and uh, there was someone I know had an opinion piece sent to them by a retired PLA general uh, suggesting that they were going to potentially intercept her aircraft as it came in. Uh, there is this, it, it became very clear that, uh, that amidst all of the noise in the U.S.-China relationship and the 
uh, dialed up rhetoric out of the Wolf Warriors and others that this was a really serious issue. And so there was some, <laughs> I don't think it's true because you couldn't get away with it uh, in leaky Washington, but there was some suggestion from people I heard that Nancy Pelosi quickly got COVID <laughs> to avoid the trip. So at any rate, um, it has been called off. Uh, there has not been any rescheduling to date. Uh, we will see if it, it does. Um, there was some questioning whether this was because of her often pro-Tibet, anti-China stance coming out of her constituency in uh, ever-liberal uh, San Francisco Bay Area. Uh, but uh, as someone said to me, the Chinese know the U.S. Constitution better than most Americans. She's third in line uh, to uh, the president. Uh, this would be uh, a really, really big bit of symbolism. And she's also incredibly effective, almost uh, a magician at times in being able to hold the caucus together and get legislation passed. And so these were not lost on, on Beijing. Mark Magnier in our New York bureau. It's always a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Jared. That's all for this week's episode and a brief bit of news. While we're not listed as an official nominee you can vote for, a big thanks to the Webby Awards for making us the only non-American podcast listed in the best news and current affairs category. Now, this show only happens each week because of the support of the journalists and editors in the various SEMP newsrooms here in Hong Kong, Beijing, US and Brussels. And it only exists thanks to the late great editor from the SEMP political economy desk, John Carter. But most of all, it's only here because you choose to listen to it each week wherever you are in the world, or indeed wherever you are here in Hong Kong. Thank you for your support. It is a great pleasure and privilege to make this podcast for you. Now, don't forget, you'll be reading the latest developments, analysis and reactions to all we've talked about and everything else that happens tonight and through the weekend at scmp.com. Follow the SCMP team on Twitter at SCMP Economy. You can follow me at jwatt. Stay safe, stay well. See you next week. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hi, this is Bachelor Clues from Game of Roses, of course, and I want to talk about Club Med. Everybody knows Club Med has been the pioneer of the all-inclusive resort since 1950 with almost 70 resorts worldwide, ranging from beachside destinations in the Caribbean and Mexico to exotic locations like the Maldives and Morocco, or even the mountain destinations like Japan and the European Alps. Dine on delicious gourmet cuisine, enjoy more than 20 activities, and make memories with your family. For more information, visit clubmed.us or call 1-800-CLUB-MED or your travel advisor.